Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbett. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. How you doing, Dave? Doing well. Finished our first term at Providence this week. So we divided our fall semester into two terms so that we'd get two chances to uh, meet back here in person in California. That's, that's the hope. And uh, fall term two starts on Monday and we have a commencement uh, on Saturday, senior celebration. So this will be the first October commencement I've been ever been a part of, but it's a nice way to celebrate Providence's class of 2020. That's great. Well, probably beautiful there actually this time of year, a nice day for a commencement. Any Kings football games been canceled uh, because of COVID <laughs> outbreaks there? Or? We do not have to worry about that at Kings. Yeah, yeah. So. No, no Cooper Union grudge match that will be no. taken off the books. <laughs> <laughs> well, last week we spoke about the presidential candidacy of Joe Biden in light of Republican principles. And as we promised them, we're going to shift our focus this week to Donald Trump in light of those same principles. Now, recognizing that the big political news this week was Senate Judiciary Committee hearings on the Supreme Court nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But we want to work our way through some of the same procedures and ideas with Donald Trump as we did with Joe Biden and think about a really big picture. How does the republic stand in this contest? So let's go right to the headlines. Last week, we started by looking at two arguments for electing Joe Biden. One was from the New York Times, endorsement of Biden, and the second from a couple of essays written by conservative columnist George Will. And so we wanted to do something more or less parallel this time around. But to be honest, Dave, it's a little hard to find newspapers endorsing Donald Trump. Uh, here's, Here's the full list as it's been compiled by Wikipedia. You have the Apple Daily out of Hong Kong, Uh, The Boston Herald, which was back in March, nothing uh, more recently than that. The Epic Times, which is an anti-communist Chinese paper that's published in the United States. Uh, The Las Vegas Review Journal. So that's a pretty big one. That's a top 25 newspaper. Uh, The Oachita Citizen, West Monroe, Louisiana, Duck Dynasty country down there. That's, That's a good get. Rhino Times from Greensboro, North Carolina. The Santa Barbara News Press and the Tulsa Beacon. So that's what you got if you're looking for Donald Trump endorsements. Uh, Wikipedia's also got a, a list of the dailies that have endorsed over the last two cycles. 46 have endorsed Biden, two have endorsed Trump, and the Dallas Morning News is, is on the fence, uh, not endorsing either this time around. As a proud uh, Lake Winnipesaukee native, uh, the fact that I don't see the Weir's Times on this Wikipedia list is disappointing. It should be there. And I, I bet there's a Trump endorsement coming out of the Lawton family okay. and the Weir's Times. So uh, I'll add that to your list too. Okay. I bet that's there. Yeah, it's, it's possible that one has not been added by the eagle eye editors at Wikipedia just yet. So let's, let's look at what we've got here in terms of the, let's say, popular partisan argument in favor of Donald Trump. And I think you get a, a pretty good taste of that from a couple of these newspapers. You've got the Oachita Citizen and the Santa Barbara News Press. And, and, and both of these endorsements begin more or less the same way, recounting the accomplishments of Donald Trump in the kind of partisan terms that you would expect. So here's first Santa Barbara. In 2016, we were the first and for months the only daily newspaper to endorse Donald Trump because we believed that the nation was in dire need for a change. He promised to make many changes, among them tax reform, creating new jobs, bringing businesses back to the U.S., reversing bad international deals like NAFTA and the TPP made by prior administrations. And he has made good on those promises. So made some promises, kept those promises. That's at least the opening argument from the Santa Barbara News Press. Now we go to Louisiana, Oachita Citizen, and a little bit more of a literary motif to open the piece. As in his epic 19th century novel, Depicting the social impact of the industrialization of England, the tale of two cities. Author Charles Dickens penned a profoundly powerful first sentence. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And they use that to talk about the challenges that we faced, the way that Donald Trump has attempted to overcome those challenges and uh, to make the case that he's best suited to 
lead us out of those challenges in, in the days and months and years to come. Um, but as you work your way down through these essays, both of them conclude with kind of a broader picture as, what, as to what's at stake in all this. So they've, they've kind of gone through the partisan arguments, they've gone through the kind of general accounting of the accomplishments of the Trump administration. But then here's how the Santa Barbara paper concludes. This is not an election of personalities. It's an election to save the country from those forces that want to transform it into something that is the antithesis of this country's founding, changing for the worst, the most wonderful country on earth. And so I think that's, that's kind of the, the broader argument that's been engaged on the pro-Trump side, uh, that there's only one candidate in this race who's really committed to the American project as it's been historically understood. That's a difference, right, from prior elections and prior campaign themes, because I think you could look back at, at different elections across American history, and both candidates are trying to make the case that their presentation of what the American life ought to be is its full realization. But I, I think that the newspaper is onto something, right, that there is this divide, and this divide does fall or tend to fall along the lines of preserving something that's good or moving forward or progressing or changing to something that's better and an improvement and that overcomes a, a past uh, that is bad. So I think there's a lot to, to say about outlining this election in those uh, terms of that di dichotomy in particular. That's going to lead us into our, our next piece, which is a, a more academic rendering, I think it's fair to say, of the case for Trump published at the American Mind, which is a website that's run by the Claremont Institute, a piece written by John Fonte of the Hudson Institute called the Mount Rushmore Election. And the Mount Rushmore references to the speech that Donald Trump gave on July 3rd. You may recall this last summer, we talked about that in a previous podcast just a little bit. And, and he frames this in terms of the challenge to the American regime posed by the Democratic Party, the progressive movement, the, the radical movement that surrounds that and some of the unrest of this last summer and, and really puts it in a longer historical context than just the last summer, but, but argues that all of this leads to the conclusion that, that the regime is really up for grabs. And so here's how he begins the piece. There is one thing upon which Joe Biden and Donald Trump agree. Biden has repeatedly described the 2020 presidential election as a battle for the soul of America. Trump has stated that this election will decide whether or not we will preserve the American way of life. They are both right. The coming presidential election is perhaps the most important since 1860, because what is at stake is not simply policy, but the sole way of life, or in classical terms, the regime of the American nation. Yeah, when reading through this, Matt, I, it made me think uh, and turn to the U.S. history book that I use in my American Civilization and Culture class, a, a new book written by Winford McClay called America, the Land of Hope. Because uh, I think he says something at the end of his book uh, in the epilogue that touches a little bit upon what Fonte is, is suggesting here or the, the problem that we're experiencing as a country. So I want to read uh, one paragraph from, from that epilogue. McClay says, this book is offered as a contribution to the making of American citizens. And that's kind of what we're trying to do here in this show as well, a contribution to the making of American citizens. As such, it is a patriotic endeavor as well as a scholarly one, and it never loses sight of what there is to celebrate and cherish in the American achievement. Exactly what went on at Rushmore in that speech this summer. That doesn't mean it is an uncritical celebration. The two things, celebration and criticism, are not necessarily enemies. Love is the foundation of the wisest criticism. I'll say that again. Love is the foundation of the wisest criticism, and criticism is the essential partner of an honest and enduring love. So what McClay is trying to get at here is he, he's the historian looking back at the country's past and still being hopeful. Uh, to, to look at the past honestly, critically, does not mean to hate the past. Uh, to love your country does not mean to overlook its faults. We need to come together uh, in love, yet in proper critique, so that we can move forward with hope. And that's something that's, that's lacking here. So that, you know, Fonte's description here of the, 
this uh, difference, you could very well say, right, that, that perhaps what's happening is that there's a, a patriotism that is blind, you know, leading one party or criticism that tends toward hate and a, um, a not a good appreciation of the good that's been done. And that, that has the makings of a wreck of an election and the wrecking of a country, unfortunately. Yeah, so let's, let's work down through this argument a little bit further because again, he's trying to unpack this idea of, of what makes this election different. And he's used the language of a regime. And of course, you may think about regime change in the uh, post 9-11 context of that term, right? Wanting to get rid of Saddam Hussein in Iraq or the Taliban in Afghanistan. That's not exactly what we have in mind. It has to do with the moral heart of a people, uh, the essential character and political commitments of a people. But here's what he argues. He says, what's been going on in American civil society and politics for the past 40 years is not simply a culture war, a term we're all familiar with if you've been involved in the political skirmishes of that period, though it is often disingenuously dismissed as trivial on those grounds. Are we really going to argue over which bathroom to use? In reality, what's at stake is not a minor argument over habits and lifestyles, but a regime change conflict between two fundamentally antagonistic visions of America and our way of life. And so as he, as he begins to wind the piece down, he, he lays out the competing visions near the end of the piece. I want to try to walk through that a little bit and get your thoughts on that, Dave, as we, as we think about, again, this, this claim. And this is a, a big claim to say this is the most important election since 1860. You know, we, we, we might be tired of those kinds of claims. It seems like every four years, it's the most important election. And theoretically, that could be true, right? It is possible that every four years, they get more and more important. So this is still it's always the most important election. But, but it seems implausible at a certain level to always hear that. And so is there a plausible case to be made that this election actually does stand out in some fundamental way from previous elections going back all the way to the time of the Civil War? So here's what he says near the end of the piece. In the 2020 election, America itself is on trial. The Biden-Harris campaign, the mainstream media, and the BLM activists find America guilty of 400 years of systemic racism, xenophobia, and white supremacy. The slaughter at Antietam and Gettysburg, the combat deaths of 750,000 in the Civil War, percentage of the population equivalent to over 7 million today, the success of the civil rights movement of the 1960s, the rescue of the free world from national socialism and communism, the election and re-election of the first chief executive of African heritage in the history of Western civilization, and the creation of the freest, most prosperous, and greatest nation the world has ever seen, apparently do not absolve or redeem America for the cadres of the Democratic Party, the militants of Black Lives Matter, and the editorial board of the Washington Post. Well, I, I have to say, when you remember this back when we did the, the July 4th show, I thought a high point of the Trump administration was his Mount Rushmore speech. And I thought in particular what he did that day was to tie together what was excellent in the particular case of America, its excellences, with this universal idea uh, he has this line in, in that speech that July 4th, 1776 was the most important day in the history of nations. It represented the culmination of thousands of years of Western civilization and the triumph not only of spirit, but of wisdom, philosophy, and reason. That's a beautiful, beautiful line and portrait of America as something of particular excellence, but something that can be a hope for the rest of the world, a beacon for the rest of the world. And even with that address, the whole speech was drowned out by charges of xenophobia and, and so on. So if you were going to suggest that one aspect of Fonte's uh, essay is, is right on and just nails it, it's this notion that no matter what Trump says, he's going to be criticized for X, Y, and Z. Yeah, and it's, it's striking if in a speech like that, that appeals to those universal principles and then as he goes through the particulars, right, what does he talk about? He talks about the poetry of Walt Whitman, the stories of Mark Twain, the songs of Irving Berlin, and then he litany of American heroes, including Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King Jr., Jesse Owens, Harriet Tubman, Louis Armstrong, Ella Fitzgerald, Muhammad Ali, the Tuskegee Airmen, 
right? And, and, and Fonte has drawn attention, of course, to the African-Americans in the list, but there's a, it's a long list of people that he's citing who, who aren't political figures per se, and the ones that are political aren't all on his side. Uh, and yet, as, as Fonte points out, this speech was, was characterized the next day, as you said, as, as xenophobic. Washington Post said he plumbed new depths of depravity, that he was trying to polarize the country in making the appeal. And, and so, you know, when you work through that, say, well, an, an appeal to universal principles, an appeal to this broad array of, of American heroes, if that's divisive, what, what, what is it that, that you could say that would be unifying? Is it, is it just about, well, we've already got Trump pegged and whatever he says, the editorial is written before he gave the speech. My guess is there's some of that going on there. But then if it's not that, then what you really are saying is, is that you've got an irredeemable American regime. And so if that's it, then there's, there really is no patriotism anymore that's available to you if you can't give the kind of speech that President Trump gave that day. Yeah, I agree. I, if the problem is going to Rushmore or it's going to Gettysburg or it's going to Normandy because it speaks to excellence and, and those aspects of the regime that are good and you can't do that anymore, then Fonte may be right. It may be a regime election uh, if we continue to move in, in that direction. So here's the last couple of sentences of the piece as he wraps it up. The 2020 election is indeed a battle for the soul of America. Like 1860 is a regime election, and there is one overriding issue. Is the American way of life something essentially good that should be vigorously affirmed and defended, or is the actually existing America, its principles, people, and culture, a deeply flawed regime that needs to be systemically transformed? That's, that's the question as, as Fonte lays it out. And obviously, then, this is embedded in a case for Trump, right? This is, this is a defense of a vote for Trump on behalf of that regime as a defense of that regime from those represented in the political sphere by, by the Biden-Harris ticket, but then all the institutions and individuals that surround that movement, that's the lines of division, right? It's a, it's a, it's a vote on November 3rd that's representative of this broader conflict that's coming to a head in some ways in this election. That's a great uh, place to uh, move into our required reading for the week, uh, Matt. Uh, one of the things that we tried to do last week is, is lay out some Republican principles that we believe were essential or an essential standard uh, to judge uh, these campaigns and, and hopefully a guide to these campaigns. So here were some of the key Republican principles that we mentioned last week. First, the end of civil society is justice, which governments pursue by aiming to promote the safety and happiness of the people. This comes from Federalist 51. The second, that the cool and deliberate sense of the majority ought to govern. You see this throughout Federalist papers. Third, that neither the governed nor the governors are angels. So there need to be systems of internal and external accountability for all parties to the government and a government capable of protecting one citizen from another. Likewise found throughout the Federalist, but particularly in Federalist 51, that legislating, executing laws, and making judgments under the law are distinct tasks that ought to be done by the right individuals operating in the right institutional framework. And then finally, that a federal system that distinguishes the powers of the national and state governments and encourages the protection of that division allows for an extended republic that mitigates the effects of faction. You know, if you needed a lesson on that, at least on the role of the judiciary, all you had to do was watch the Amy Coney Barrett hearings this week. It was a masterclass. We'll talk about that more in a little bit, but just one point after another, talking through what does it mean to be a judge and how does the role of the judiciary distinguished from the role of the legislator or the executive? I think she's read her Federalist papers or, and definitely understands the spirit of each office, right? This is Federalist 57. The aim of every political constitution is or ought to be first to obtain for the rulers men who possess most wisdom to discern and most virtue to pursue the common good of the society. And in the next place to take the most effectual precautions for keeping them virtuous whilst they continue to hold their public trust in for a variety of different departments, executive, legislative, and the judiciary, but knowing what that department does to contribute uh, to 
uh, that common good of society. Uh, I think that's something that takes uh, wisdom and discerning, uh, and a discerning nature, and also a virtue, um, uh, the virtue of integrity and the virtue of courage to pursue that uh, rightly. So these are kind of the, the principles that stand at the core of the American regime as laid out by the founders, and in particular, the authors of the Federalist Papers. Uh, would you say, Matt, uh, at a first glance, uh, that uh, these virtues uh, well describe the uh, Trump presidency and uh, give you uh, reason uh, to support his campaign uh, in 2020? Or are there things about the Trump presidency that give you pause on, on the, these fronts? Well, I would say it's, it's the latter for sure, but it's not an entirely negative picture when you try to match them up to these virtues. So with respect to wisdom, I mean, the essential wisdom is the wisdom to discern the common good. And so what does that mean? It means to understand the nature of the regime, to understand the role of an executive within that regime, to understand policies that are best suited for promoting the common good. Uh, I think he has an intuitive understanding of the fundamental threats to the regime. And, and so it may be in some ways better than a lot of Republican career politicians. When you think back to 2016, why was it that he was able to distinguish himself from that very big field? Some of that was just the Trump show, but some of that was his ability to put a finger on some things that, that others hadn't put a finger on in terms of the kinds of things people were worried about and the, th the threats, uh, legitimate threats to the regime. But the problem is he doesn't really understand the regime at its core. And so you know, he's constantly suggesting that the executive should do things that no executive should do. And, and also sometimes not doing the things that an executive should do. So he has this strange habit on, like, on Twitter of, of like critiquing his own administration as if he's not the head of the administration and, and complaining about his cabinet secretaries when he could just remove them if he doesn't like what they do. So he doesn't seem to get his role in the executive framework and doesn't have that broader appreciation, I think, of the deep principles of Republican government that, that would allow him to then know where he's aiming for right, to have a sense of here's what's wrong, good, but here's how we improve it better, right, that, that's an important element of the wisdom that's necessary that, that he seems to lack. When it comes to, you know, integrity and courage, I would say his, his defining quality is, is the courage to do what's unpopular, and yet he's got this side by side with that, this need to be praised, you know, so he doesn't mind being unpopular in certain quarters, he doesn't obviously mind being unpopular with the media, although he'll complain about it, but, but he, you know, he picks those fights, so obviously he doesn't mind their ire, but, but he does have this need to be surrounded by people who, who love him, who praise him, who encourage him. And so he gets some of these kind of third-rate sycophants that end up being in positions of authority around him, and, and I don't think necessarily give him the best advice. It's one thing to be able to identify some of the things that are or dangers, but can we actually make progress toward ameliorating those dangers without somebody who really appreciates them deeply and who's, who's, who's committed, let's say, to the constitutional exercise of executive power, for example, right? That, we desperately need that. And it's one of the reasons in 2016 why I thought that Donald Trump was, was the worst candidate perhaps among the group, that I didn't expect that he would have any kind of understanding of the need to rein in the executive. And I think, at least on that point, the events have proven that to be correct. So it's going to be very close in New York yes. on November 3rd. Yes. So this is it's a nail biter. It's a, it's a, it's, it's, I, I mean, I think that uh, the campaign needs to reach out to you and answer your questions on these fronts. Um, so yeah. Because I wouldn't, wouldn't feel sure of your vote uh, from what you just said. But um, you should, they should definitely not feel sure of my vote. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, but kidding aside, right, I think that what you've said um, is that not only does uh, Trump have, right, an intuitive understanding of the fundamental threats to the regime, but he has an intuitive understanding of politics, right? Politics is about proper nouns. And that's both the, the great thing for Trump. He understands, right, that politics is about proper nouns, about things or associations to, to individual people or to the regime itself that you ought to embrace, 
The, the problem, however, right, is the most important proper noun to Trump is Trump. Yes. Uh, and that uh, As becomes- As you can see on all his buildings. <laughs> exactly, right. And that, that, that gets in the way. So to understand politics um, as, uh, as something that plays out with proper nouns is essential because it might lead to those things like courage and loyalty and the embrace uh, of a solid patriotism, but it can also lead to um, silliness, pettiness, uh, et cetera, that um, especially when you're drawn to uh, your own name and what you're doing and uh, the essentiality of your own person uh, to, to, to the whole process uh, itself. So um, I, I think what you're also saying here, right, is that Trump, while he understands in part uh, the need for justice has somewhat of a mistaken view of, of what justice is. So this leads uh, nicely to uh, my assigned required reading uh, for the week. Perhaps the book uh, par excellence on justice is Plato's Republic. And uh, for all those former students, you know that at the beginning of the Republic, uh, Socrates takes a jaunt down to the Piraeus with Glaucon, and he meets an old man, Cephalus, and, and says, I haven't seen you for some time. How's it feel like uh, being near death? And Cephalus replies, well, I feel pretty well because I've told the truth and paid my debts uh, throughout my business career. And Socrates then says, is that necessarily a, what a good life amounts to? And uh, Cephalus gives up on the so Socratic questioning real quickly and, <laughs> and hands the argument off to his son, Polymachus, who then comes forward and, and says, what my father was trying to say is that a good life is doing well by your friends and harm uh, to your enemies, that justice is benefiting your friends and harming your enemies. Is there something to that Polymarchian definition of justice that you see in Donald Trump, Matt? Well, I think that that is the Donald Trump definition of justice. And of course, it brings with it all the, the faults that Socrates exposes to that definition if you're not very discerning as to who your friends are and what a true friend looks like. And if you don't appreciate that as president of a nation, there really aren't any enemies, right? Or, or the enemies better be few. There's certainly not the 49% of people or 51% of people that didn't vote for you. Right? That's not how you define enemies in a republic, even if you recognize that that group may be unpersuaded by your merits as president, not the same thing as making them an enemy that needs to be punished or, or defeated in some final sense. Because if that is the course of, of your republic or politics, then you'll move quickly to the third definition of justice that Socrates encounters in book one of the Republic, that of the sophist Thrasymachus, who says that justice is the advantage of the stronger, uh, which might be an excellent critique of uh, the Democratic Party uh, in uh, 2020 and the direction that it's moving in and a critique that could be made of this kind of all or nothing uh, white males had their time for 200 years. It's now time to move forward um, and, um, and, and uh, have a new uh, set of power elites come in and uh, rule according to their whim. Nothing uh, easy about uh, uh, that definition of justice. And, and as you rightly say, something problematic when you don't know who your friends and enemies are. And as a president, you don't realize that you're there to lead uh, all people. So here, uh, I, I think you know, we had last week uh, these lessons from... Uh, prior Democratic presidents that we thought would be a good standard uh, bearer for uh, Vice President Joe Biden. Uh, I'd like to do the same thing this week uh, by drawing lessons in our required reading uh, from Abraham Lincoln, uh, from Calvin Coolidge, and, the, and finally from uh, Dwight Eisenhower, and, and get your take on on each of these lessons. Uh, this uh, this plays perfectly to what you just said about uh, the, the problem of, of treating those who you rule uh, as your enemies, even when they're your fellow Republican citizens. Uh, Lincoln's famous last paragraph of, of the second inaugural address, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. It's not perfect clarity that we have. It's the right as God gives us to see the right. Let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up, that's a peaceful uh, sentiment, to bind up, to bring together the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, uh, both northerner and southerner, correct? To do right. all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting keyword, peace. Right. It's difficult to win a war, but how do you win a peace after that war, right? 
to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Uh, what a sentiment. And that's a, that's a sentiment. We've, we've gone through some of the things we ought to be thinking about as we go through this election season. But uh, that, that malice toward none uh, would be uh, greatly employed by all after November 3rd. Your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, you rightly emphasized there in the last part of it, to do all which may achieve it and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves, and then ultimately extending that to all nations. But that's just it, right? We, we just cannot be constantly on a war footing. And this is one of the challenges with the, the Fonte assessment, I think, um, not to say that there's not this great conflict, and maybe this is the most consequential election since 1860, but 2024 doesn't really portend to be any different. And 2028, how will that be different, right? The 1860 led to secession, which led to a civil war, which led to at least a, a military victory in that war and, and then an uneasy peace. I mean, the, the vision that Lincoln lays out here was obviously not achieved during Reconstruction or in the period of years in some ways that have followed that right almost down to the present day. But if we think about the challenges that we face today, how do we actually get to a point where we don't have the most consequential election of our lifetime or of 150 years, where, where the, the stakes are lower because the, the conflict is not so fundamental that, that, I think, is, is the real challenge here. It's not to identify the stakes of the election, but to find a way to lower the stakes the next time around so that we're not doing this again in four years and saying, this is the most important election yet, and, and maybe make a plausible case for that too. And, and off we go in this combat that seems to have no end. Is there any way to establish terms for a just and lasting peace? Start with among ourselves. Yeah, but to be fair, I would say, right, there is that paragraph earlier on in that same second inaugural, and I'm not saying you would discount this, right, that both parties deprecated war, but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive, and the other would accept war rather than let it perish. And the war came. Nothing good about that, but perhaps sometimes that choice is out of your hands, right? And, and um, yeah, someone could critique uh, Donald Trump and say, well, his language is producing more of that animus and more of that desire to make war. Uh, but when, if the war comes to you, you have to make a choice at that point as to what you're going to do and how you're going to respond to it. But still, you know, just a wonderful uh, statesman-like appreciation for the end of politics, which is peace, right? A, a peace in which we live the way of life that, that we want to. And, and that, that you can't, as you said, constantly be fighting one war after another and have every election be about war because then that peace will never come. It'll never arrive. And yeah. If you have to fight the war, you have to fight the war. I agree with that. There's no doubt about that. And that's, yeah. you know, Lincoln um, gives a fair accounting of that necessity yeah. in, in his case. But again, the war must be unto peace. Exactly. And, and the battle plan has to be clear. And there have to be generals that are deployed to, to win the battles that ultimately lead to the victory. And, and that's, I think, the challenge we face, right? If, if there's a, a quasi-war, and may it never be so violent as, as the Civil War, but if there's a quasi-war that we're a part of, what is the battle plan? And, and what is the pathway toward some cessation of, of hostility? And, and is there something short of total victory or total defeat, unconditional surrender? That, that can get us out of this. I mean, the other thing we learned from Lincoln, right, is just how essential it is for that spokesperson, for that president to kind of lay out those parameters, that, that, those characteristics of, uh, of, of principled um, action uh, in this world, which moves us nicely to uh, a lesson that I want to take, or lessons I want to take from uh, Calvin Coolidge. Um, and if you haven't picked up this book, you ought to. It's it's the autobiography of Calvin Coolidge. I think it costs like six or eight dollars. You'll start reading this autobiography and, and you'll believe that it's fiction because you'll wonder how could any president write in such a simple, salt of the earth, humble manner about their life, how they arrived at the presidency and what they thought of it when they got here. But I want to give you a couple snippets from that great autobiography because I think you get a sense as to who Coolidge is and how he might be an exemplar uh, for both President Trump uh, or any 
future uh, uh, president. Uh, on introspection and humility and knowing yourself, something you say that uh, President Trump uh, lacks, here's what Coolidge had to say, Matt. Uh, in entering national politics, I had no national experience. What I have ever been able to do has been the result of first learning how to do it. I am not gifted with intuition. I need not only hard work but experience to be ready to solve problems. Can you imagine any American politician uh, relaying that aspect of their own person? <laughs> that that be your, your 30-second ad as you kind of lay out the case sure. for you? I'm not, I'm not gifted with intuition. Uh, I need not only hard work but experience to be ready to solve problems. <laughs> so, or, you know, these, these lines are uh, government. Nothing is more dangerous to good government than great power in improper hands. Just a, another set, uh, understanding here of, of what it means to hold office uh, and the respect that you had to have for the office and the, and the power can be problematic. And I think that sums up, summed up in the next line uh, on when he became president. And this is, I think, my favorite line of Coolidge of all. It is a great advantage to a president and a major source of safety to the country for him to know that he is not a great man. When a man begins to feel that he is the only one who can lead in this republic, he is guilty of treason to the spirit of our institutions. And it's amazing when you think of the historical context when, when Coolidge is relaying the, these lowercase r Republican sentiments. This is the 1920s. This is that time period in between wars um, where um, the fomenting of hatred and jealousy and anger after World War I is leading to uh, these new and balanced regimes forming in the Pacific theater and, and European theater. Uh, and the great uh, historian Paul Johnson writes in uh, – his great 20th century history, Modern Times, on Coolidge. He says, Coolidge reflected America's Arcadian separateness during the 1920s by showing that in deliberate contrast to the strident activism taking over so much of Europe and driven by the idea that political motion had replaced religious piety as the obvious form of moral worth, it was still possible to practice successfully the archaic virtue of stasis. We just mentioned peace, stability, keep, keep things simple, uh, that it's not necessarily you know, one chaotic uh, event after another that, that allows you to make your mark on the world, but to achieve a peace uh, that has a, a level of stasis to it. Yeah, and you think about him doing this after the presidencies of Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. You know, you got, got the interlude of Taft in the middle there. Uh, more restrained. And of course, at the very beginning, before Coolidge takes over, you have Harding. But the, the model, the American model as well, wasn't just the rise of these European dictators eventually, but, but even the American presidential model is becoming this kind of cult of personality and this exercise of command and authority. And that's, that's the immediate example. Certainly the, the presidents that are lauded over the course of his political career are the TRs and the Woodrow Wilsons who are making something of the office and who are pretty convinced that they probably are essential to the survival of the Republic. And for him to come in with this entirely different understanding of things, he didn't pick that up from the American exceptionalism of his day because there wasn't a lot of exceptionalism to pick up in the context of TR and Wilson leading up to the Harding and then Coolidge presidency. Yeah, even though it was prohibition, there was quite a bit of uh, a lack of sobriety <laughs> in terms of what uh, people thought that they could do with power, which I, I think is, was evidence of uh, lack of sobriety. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I, I let me finish w with this because we we talked about the importance of words and and how statesmen use words, and this is what Coolidge had to had to say because we all, always know him as Silent Cal. He says the following, perhaps one of the reasons I have been a target of so little abuse is because I have tried to refrain from abusing other people. The words of the president have an enormous weight and ought not to be used indiscriminately. It would be exceedingly easy to set the country all by the ears and foment hatreds and jealousies, which by destroying faith and confidence would help nobody and harm everybody. The end would be the destruction of all progress. While everyone knows that evils exist, there is yet sufficient good in the people to supply material for most of the comment that needs to be made. What a great line. 
in the people, in us, right? The, we the people. The only way I know to drive out evil from the country is by the constructive method of filling it with good. The country is better off tranquilly considering its blessings and merits and earnestly striving to secure more of them than it would be in nursing hostile bitterness about its deficiencies and faults. All parties could take a lot from that last statement. Yeah, you know, you could put that on three by five card and leave it by the president's phone. And it might help when he wakes up in the morning ready to start firing off on Twitter. A little bit of restraint there might go a long way. Well, there's still 17 days, and, and uh, so who knows? Maybe he's listening or, or someone else is listening, and, and uh, a new result is, is, is produced. I, uh, I noticed, by the way, that uh, Coolidge's autobiography is 122 pages, which is, is another point in his favor. Exactly. There, are, there are a few autobiographies of, of great men that can be compressed into that short space. I, I would say a must read. So we, we assigned what the Federalist Papers, but uh, pick up your autobiography of Calvin Coolidge as well. It'll be a good reading as you uh, think through and judge uh, whoever wins uh, by his standard. But we have one more president. I wanted to have a, a president. Uh, that, and here's a, here's a president in a lesson, I think, um, that uh, President Donald Trump um, has done a, a good job um, appropriating. Uh, because I think there is a, a problem in in what is mentioned by uh, Dwight Eisenhower 60 years ago in his farewell address. I'm just going to read a part of that. It's probably the most famous part of the address. He talks about the conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry. This is the new American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. This, this is Ike. This is a World War II general talking about the danger of the military-industrial complex, but he also, near the end of the speech, talks about the danger of being held captive by a scientific technological elite. We always remember, right, uh, and you see this kind of at the um, lemonade stands uh, for uh, school boards, right? It'd be a wonderful world if we changed the way that we spend money and started supporting education rather than buying bombs. But no one ever talks, Matt, do they, about being held captive by a scientific technological elite, or might I say a ruling elite or ruling class. And that's been quite a problem uh, for this country the last 60 years. No? Yeah. And that's you know something that Eisenhower is arguing here in, in both cases, is that when the government starts to spend lots of money on things, it leads to the corruption of the industries where it's spending the money. And so it's not like there's some great danger, military people per se, or those that head munitions corporations or the corporations that build the airplanes or whatever. It's just that there's an inherent corruptibility that emerges when you start getting on that federal gravy train and you've got lots of big money contracts coming in. And how do you keep the contracts coming in? Well, you got to use it to lose it and then rebuild it, right? You've got you to drop those bombs so you can make the next bomb. And you've got to have some need for that fighter jet so you can have a need for the next fighter jet and keep those contracts rolling in. And the same thing he points out later on in the speech is happening in the American Academy. The no, it could, could, couldn't possibly happen. The, no, I thought that was just when you made whoa, bombs, not, whoa, not, whoa, not whoa, curricula. Whoa, whoa, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. No, that's unfortunately oh. also what he's saying here. That's, that's who he's talking about, the scientific technological elite. The money that's going to fund academic research. No, we're educators, Matt. No, we, know, we would never do that. We believe we, in the truth. Yeah, we follow <laughs> wherever the truth you, leads. Very you, mean to say, you mean to say that there's an education industry out there also that perhaps is corrupted by this influence? I, I, I just, I have a hard time believing that. You know, well, that's tongue in cheek. It's interesting because here we are 60 years on and all the headlines from this speech are about the military industrial complex. But 
is it possible that actually the greater threat over the course of these last 60 years was not actually posed by, by Grumman and Boeing, but perhaps by this scientific technological elite, well-funded, that ties in with government power and authority? This is not a really well-researched subject. Let me just illustrate the point. So I was teaching this speech a year and a half ago, and I thought, oh, you know, I wonder how often people talk about both these things. I know everyone talks about the military industrial complex, but how often do they actually write about the scientific technological elite? So there's, this is my count, little search in JSTOR, which is the, the journal article online resource, 4,356 articles that mention the military industrial complex, 56 articles that mention the scientific technological elite. Apparently the academy does not like to look at itself and ask serious questions about where its funding comes from and how that funding corrupts uh, its, its research and, and leads it into alliances that compromise its, its independence. Who would have thunk that Eisenhower was referencing John Dewey in addition to Alfred T. Mahan? This is, this is a, a, we need to do more uh, research on this, right? Get, get the word out. Uh, but uh, right, kidding aside, we, we, this is the world that we live in and we know what? We know that uh, we were talking about regimes earlier, and is this a, a, a regime election? But regimes are formed by uh, education, uh, the education of our young, uh, what they receive, what they think uh, about uh, concepts of justice and the best life and so on. So uh, a lot has happened there over the last 60 years, um, I think, in the wrong direction. So I, I would answer your question uh, with a pretty clear yes. I think the more dangerous of the two has been this um, scientific technological elite, especially within the education industry. Yeah, and I think we see that in this really ironically almost religious invocation of science, especially on the left when it comes to questions around COVID or on climate change or whatever the case might be. It was interesting. One of the, the few moments of clarity last night in Joe Biden's town hall meeting was when they were talking about following the science on, on COVID and shutdowns and and George Stephanopoulos says to him now, isn't it probably the case that the scientists will disagree? What do you do then? <laughs> well, yes, well done, Mr. Stephanopoulos. It's, it is possible the scientists might disagree. And then what will you have to do? You'll have to make a moral judgment. Of course, all along you're making moral judgments, but you want to hide them behind the mask of following science, as if science can direct you on moral questions uh, rather than investigate things about the world. And of course, even there in those investigations, oftentimes in ways that are inconclusive uh, or ways that require further reflection or exploration over the course of time. And certainly in the middle of an ongoing pandemic, do we expect the science to be settled uh, immediately? No, we don't. But um, yet we have this invocation of science as if it can solve the problems. And, and the easiest thing to do, and of course, why didn't Trump do this all along, is just follow science. So that's what I have, Matt. That's the required reading, uh, these, these three examples, and, and uh, uh, turning back to that you know, great uh, discussion of justice in, in Plato's Republic. Uh, so uh, that, that's an education, hopefully. And, and um, you know, we, uh, we've said all along that uh, as we head toward November 3rd, we want to think that there's going to be a day after, an election after that, and a, and a peace that we strive toward. Now that leads us to our second to last segment, where we open the grade book each week. Didn't have a debate. As it turned out, we did have two competing town hall meetings. It was a real contrast in styles. The Biden event, you've got nice and an easy chair. You've got Biden, Stephanopoulos. Stephanopoulos, very light touch. And just you know, the audience asking the question, and then Biden gives like a five-minute answer where he just keeps on going and going and going and going. Some yeah. really tough questions too, right, Matt? I imagine he just was a blistering attack on, on Biden with the yeah. questions. And went, yeah, um, well, yeah. And Stephanopoulos was really piling on too, as you would imagine, just you know, hammering him on all the weak points of the Biden administration. No, actually, the one really funniest moment, he was talking about jobs and Remember the old days with the Clinton administration, Bill Clinton came up with the, the formula, you, you, you talk about spending as investment, and now it's a good thing, and we get jobs, and all this good stuff happens. And so he says to Stephanopoulos, you know as well as I do from your days, you know, in the old days, and you could see him catch himself because he was about to say, 
your days in the Clinton administration, but then you realize, wait a second, this guy's an objective journalist now. We can't talk about that. It's, you know, we have to maintain this fiction like George Stephanopoulos is just, you know, the, the journalist who's there in this kind of adversarial position. Well, if you want adversarial journalism, then you needed to watch the Trump town hall because Savannah Guthrie definitely brought that. And uh, it was very lively. <laughs> it was back and forth. And, you know, as, as boring as Biden's answers were, Trump's were, were just classic Trump. Right? His, his best line on Obamacare, he says, the problem with Obamacare is it's not good. And then he says, as he comes back around, the problem with Obamacare is it can't be great. So that's it. What are we going to do? Very simple. We want better health care for less money. It was, it was a really study in contrast. But we're not grading that because it wasn't a debate. So what we are going to grade, the performance of Amy Coney Barrett and the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings on her nomination for the Supreme Court. So I have a feeling, Dave, you didn't watch all four days wall to wall. You may have had other things you had to do. But can you give me your impressions of what you saw and read about how she did? Yeah, in that 32 minutes that I watched of, of highlights, uh, I thought that uh, she did a great job of explaining how she sees the role uh, of a judge uh, and how uh, she understands what the role of the judge is not. And uh, was constantly uh, pestered by this uh, by, by uh, committee members to to say that a judge is something that a judge is not. So I, th I think she uh, stuck to the script, which is the U.S. Constitution, uh, and it served her well. And she looked professional. And I think that uh, there's little chance at all, although they'll try uh, to uh, defeat her nomination. And I think uh, in the next week or two, uh, we'll have another Supreme Court justice, which is an A in my book. Yep, I agree. I mean, she, I think she was terrific. She was disciplined. I, I don't know how you sit through, especially that first day where, you, you know, they're just reading speeches. And then you get more of that and you get these long efforts to try to wind you up or get you, you know, provoke you in some way. And yet she handles it all with a plum, right? Not, not going to take the bait, just going to give you a rational response you know, not, not without showing that she knows what you're doing. There were some reminders of that. Okay, yeah, I, I, I know the game you're playing, and I'm not going to be caught up in your game. But again, really just an excellent demonstration of judicial principles and judicial temperament. Right? There is just no doubt if, if she were on the Supreme Court, in your case were being heard by, by her, that you would have good grounds for confidence that you're going to get a fair hearing, right? Which is the best thing you could ask for. And that the case would be decided according to the agreed upon principles that we have in the constitution and the laws under which we're governed. Now you may not win the case because your argument may not be the best argument on those terms. You may not like the results as many members of the Senate seem to not like the results they anticipated would follow from this ruling or that ruling or this past ruling or whatever. Well, that's why we have opportunities for changing laws. And I think she did drew a very bright line between the legislator and the judge. And boy, it would be great if, if that became a model for Supreme Court justices going forward, because we don't need to have a partisan divide over whether judges should judge. I, I will give her uh, an A for that performance and, and hope we see more like that in judicial hearings to come. Now, as we wrap things up, we turn to de Tocqueville's crystal ball. Unfortunately, Dave, it was our worst week of picks to date. Uh, we both were right that Clemson would roll over Miami and I picked the Rays over the Yankees in their ALDS game five. But other than that, it was not pretty. So, I am now 16 and nine. You are eight and 17. So that's, that's rough. <laughs> well, thankfully, good, nobody good, is trying to make a living off us. All right. Good baseball average, but that's about it so, yeah. for me. Okay. Yeah. So but I have more time. I, I, I have this week. It's I, not I have over to, yet. I have to nail maybe three weeks to get back to 500, but that's yeah. good. I, I, yeah. I, I feel confident. Okay, what are our picks for all this right. week? We, we've, we've got a good week of picks for you, I think. I think. I think you'll do all right this time. So number one, we got NFL. 
Washington football team at the New York Giants. We've, we've really picked out these matchups with the best teams. I thought, Let, let's try one with the worst teams. So these are two terrible teams, um, at least according to point differential, the two worst teams in the NFC. Three-point favorite for the Giants. Meanwhile, the football team trying to figure out what to do at quarterback. Uh, so what do you think, Dave? Uh, in, the, in the battle of, of the bad, who's, who's worse? I'm going to take the Giants here. I, 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 think, they can, I think they can win one. Uh, they're, and they, I'm only giving up three points. So, I, yeah, I'm going to go with the Giants. Who knows? I've got to win, <laughs> I to win one of these. So, I was going to say Washington, but I'm going, to, I'm going to go with the opposite of what my initial reaction is. So, I'm going to go with Giants. How about you? All right. Yeah, I'm going to take Washington. So, that'll give you a chance to catch up one if, if you can nail that. I think three points, you know, with, with two bad teams, it's kind of a toss-up. Um, so, I, I think, you know, Washington wins – maybe by a field goal. It's probably one of those 16-13 kind of games that nobody wants to watch. Let's look at number two, college football. Big, big matchup. Number three, Georgia at number two, Alabama. You know, they often they play in the SEC championship game, but not usually in the regular season. This is a big matchup. Uh, made more complicated by the fact that Nick Saban will not be coaching Alabama after testing positive for COVID. So uh, what do you think, Dave? I saw some of that Alabama Ole Miss game last week, which was fun if you like scoring. And the most thing amazing is that how many fans were in the stadiums of these SEC schools. So this game's at Alabama. I don't know if they'll allow 30,000 people in the stadium, but they'll, they'll make a difference and it'll be a little win for the Gipper, one one for the Gipper, uh, but in this case, Saban. So I'm going to take Alabama and, and give those six points. Okay. All right. Yeah, I'm going to go with Georgia. So we'll have another one where one of us is right and the other is wrong. I, I was not impressed. 48 points against Ole Miss on the road, but still, that, that's not the Alabama defense that we're used to. Uh, without Saban, you're right, it could be a, a rallying point or, or it could be enough to make the difference the other way. I'm going, to, I'm going to say that's more likely to be the case, and so I'm going to take Georgia. I'll take the points, but I think actually Georgia just wins the game. Number three, we've got Major League Baseball. Game five of the NLCS, the Dodgers, Dave, are on the ropes. We both picked them uh, to make the World Series. I picked them to win it. You picked Houston to win it. So our teams are all alive here, but the Dodgers are in trouble after Kershaw, good but not great, once again in the postseason last night. That was rough uh, for Dodgers fans especially. I think it's hard for them to come back uh, from that loss uh, last night. So I, I think the Braves will, will finish off uh, the Dodgers and, and head to the World Series, uh, which would have made my dad happy. So that's good. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think the Dodgers are going to at least get one back. I, I, it wouldn't surprise me if they come all the way back on this, but, but I think they at least win game five. So we'll see. But I, I think they're at least going to push it to game six, and then, and then who knows? Um, as we see in the American League series. All right, now, NBA's over, NHL's over, which means it's getting a little bit tough to fill out this five sports, five contest kind of thing. And we can go yeah. back to the Premier League well. We've got, you know, there's always something happening in golf. But Badminton I would, I would, or highlight or, you know, what, what, yeah, where we're going the, now. Those are options. But I, I, I did a little bit of research, and I thought, you know, what, what about what's going on in the rugby world? And as it turns out, this is the week. So, you know, they have, they have like their version of the Champions League, European Championship. It's, they've been playing it for a whole year because of COVID, of course. Right? They started last November, and they're finally wrapping it up. Here we are in October. European Rugby Championship Cup. And I, I don't have to tell you the teams in the finals, Dave, but I'll, I will anyway, just to refresh your memory here. We have the Exeter Chiefs, obviously Pride of England, against Racing 92, from France, naturally. Uh, Racing has never won the championship, but they were twice runner-up in the last five years. Exeter has never made the final, so this is the first time for them. Nevertheless, it's being played in Bristol, so you got the home country, at least, advantage for Exeter. And Exeter is favored by five and a half points. So what do you think, Dave? Who's, who's going to be rugby champion of Europe this year? Even if Racing 92 were 37-point favorites, there's no way I'm choosing a French team over an English team 
as a native Englishman. So Beach. yeah, uh, Chiefs were my Pop Warner football team, uh, Exeter. I've lived there. Uh, so uh, Exeter Chiefs, yeah, they, they take uh, the title. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I lived 13 years in Exeter, New Hampshire. Can't abandon Exeter now. All right, last. So we're just going to give up on the fifth sport. We're going to do our second Major League Baseball pick because it's our, it's our show. We can do that. We've got Maybe need some of our, our listeners to kind of give us some sports ideas. Maybe there's some, some good competitions out there that we're just not following, like a curling you know, competition in Finland or something like that that we could be like looking at. So. Yeah, that's a good idea, actually. Yeah, you want to you wanna send us a note. We'd be happy to hear from you if you have some ideas for some of these less prominent sports that we can really apply our, our general sports expertise to picking. Um, as you can see, such a analytically kind of driven predictions that we often make. So now we're going back to the well. We're going to take baseball. We've got Tampa Bay with their third chance to knock out Houston. Is this 2004 all over again? Can Houston actually win four in a row? Does Tampa Bay put their name right up there next to the New York Yankees as the second team to lose four in a row? I, I really don't want that to happen just for obvious reasons. I want the Yankees to have that mark of infamy forever and the Red Sox to be the only team ever to have come back. But here we are. Not impossible. Two games in, Tampa Bay looking a little shaky. What do you think, Dave? I'm going to go with Houston. I'm going to say that they make it interesting. I'm not sure they win the seventh game, but I'm going to say they win game six. Uh, They take it to that seventh game. Of course, I'd pick them to win it all, so I'm hoping that they're able to get by Tampa Bay and then perhaps get on to the Braves. So I'll go with Houston here. Okay. I'm going to take Tampa Bay. They were my pick to win the American League. I'm sticking with them. I'm, I'm a little bit worried, I have to admit it, um, because, you know, they don't have the history here, and obviously Houston does. So sometimes when you get to these crunch time moments, that's what makes the difference. But I think Tampa Bay still has the pitching. They still have the talent. They get over the line tonight. Well, that's going to do it for us for this week. I want to remind you, as always, to – Subscribe and review the show at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And we'll look forward to talking to you next week.